0: that's why i wish i had played golf more Uh, i I think i would have been a way better basketball player if i played golf because it would have conditioned me more to failure
1: and we are back for another park train i am one of your co-hosts evan singer
2: i am your other co-host matt Cermak, and we are back
1: guys we just got off an amazing interview with jay billis Arguably one of the best sports broadcasters in the world, maybe ever. I mean, heard of him. Uh, Who doesn't
2: like like Jay Billis?
1: Jay Billis is the best. He's always been one of my favorites, and now especially even more so. But before we get to that interview, uh, in case you're just joining us, the par train is we use golf as a platform to help you live and learn how to live a better life, or at least make your life a little bit less frustrating than golf can be. Um, learn yep. to get better and achieve peak performance on and off the course from PGA Tour pros, best-selling authors, CEOs, coaches, and people like Jay Billis, like this episode. Before we get to that episode, we have a quick word from our sponsor, Superspeed Golf. How would you like to add distance to every club in your bag? Every club. Every wow. club. For wow. the past few years, club head speed and distance have dominated the headlines on the Pro Tours. The longest players show up time and time again at the top of the leaderboards in the biggest events. But what about your guys' games, right? Distance is just as important, if not more important, for amateurs. And through the use of all of their technology and statisticians, we now know that how far you hit it, especially off the tee, has a direct correlation to lower scoring average. I mean, Bryson DeChambeau. Have you heard of him? He uses super speed.
2: Look at the data.
1: Look at the data. Bryson uses it. And so since 2014, super speed golf has been at the forefront of training distance by providing a simple, easy and effective way to increase your club head speed for all different types of players. It's a scientifically proven concept of overspeed training where each super speed set comes with three specifically weighted clubs, all designed around the weight of your driver. And so you do these protocols. It's eight to 10 minutes each time. Um, they've got videos to help you understand how to do it, yep. and you do it three times a week for optimal results. I mean, it's eight to ten minutes, three times a week for longer drives. I mean, that's easy. I mean, I
2: mean if you want speed, if you want to hit it farther. I mean, the fitness component's great too.
1: Yeah, you know, it does. You've done control. it. I mean, it's and so oh, have I. I mean, oh, it's oh, it's, a, it's a it's a workout.
2: It's a workout. There's a whole fitness and stretching and yep. range of motion aspect to it. So, I mean, the game is being taught hit it hard first, hit it straight second. So go find yeah, some yards, yeah. guys.
1: Superspeedgolf.com. And if that's not enough for you, more than 700 tour players around the world are using the system, as well as thousands of everyday golfers. So go to superspeedgolf.com or follow at SuperspeedGolf on social media. Use the code PARTRAIN for 10% off your purchase and start hitting it longer.
2: It's a nice deal, too. Yeah.
1: You know? Okay, Jay Billis. Matt, we were just talking before we recorded this intro, and it's funny. I think this is one of my favorite parts about this show is we would never have had the opportunity to talk to someone like Jay Billis. Like I said, he's been one of my favorite broadcasters since I was a kid. And the fact that he loves golf gave us, and all of you guys out there listening, this point of connection, this point of, of, of really... Understanding each other on a level that only golfers do, and yet there's also a lot of parallels between his book on toughness, what he's learned from Coach K, at Duke being coach himself under Coach K, and seeing top performers in basketball and the parallels between that and golf. I mean, Jay could have talked about golf for this entire totally. hour easily.
2: Totally, you can, right? you can tell how much he loves it. He took the game up in his 20s. He said, you know, didn't really love it growing up because of the, you know. He was a ba- I mean, he was a basketball player. He played for Duke. He played in the NBA, um, but he, he really exudes passion about the game. But you know, there's so much in in our conversation that, that was so cool to, to listen to. He talked about attitude, work ethic, um, some of the misconceptions, you know, about what it means to be a hard worker, what it means to be tough, how to think as an athlete, how to prepare when you're playing basketball. And then he really brought it back to golf and his own game. And I think. I think we all learned a lot from each other just kind of talking about our our experiences in golf and playing golf. And that's, what's so cool about the sport, you know? And I think that's why we do it. So he was, it was an absolute thrill to sit down with Jay.
1: Yeah. No, it was an amazing conversation. He's got a really good uplifting message and story at the end that I think everybody needs to hear right now. Um, And so, yeah, we'll kick to the interview. If you guys aren't following us on social media at the par train, we got giveaways. We got, Funny content. We've got uplifting stuff. I mean, just do it already. I mean, if you follow us here, follow us there. And uh, also, one thing that I'd really love to ask of you guys is if you've been enjoying this podcast, do us a favor and give us a review. It really helps us to get up there and rankings and different things so that we can keep doing this. So, if you guys like the show, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen. And uh, that we'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to hear from you. All right, guys. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. We've got a lot of fun interviews lined up and so I'm excited to, to share it. And uh, as always uh, play well and enjoy the game. Even when the swing isn't quite feeling right, which is seems most of the time. grinding. Keep grinding. All right, guys, take care. So Jay, we got to start off with, you know, this is a year of no college basketball. It's, it's unlike any other, but we want to, how are you holding up? Number one. And secondly, has playing golf been a savior? Has it helped you fill this void? Cause from your Instagram bio, it says you're proficient chipping out sideways. So I'm hoping maybe you can give any chipping out tips, you know, for our listeners.
0: Yeah. Uh, well first, you know, with the, the whole COVID uh, thing, uh, I'm like everybody else, uh, you're doing the best you can. It's been an adjustment for everyone. And so you're trying to, I mean, it's been a high class problem uh, that I have to spend most of my free time playing golf, but, um, uh, you know, I do think we're going to have a basketball season. Uh, It'll probably be disrupted like football has. So we'll have to deal with some, some different problems. And it's during the winter time when we're going to be mostly indoors and they're expecting another, another wave or spike, whatever you want to call it. So we'll have to be adaptable. Um, and you'll have to be adaptable. I think with your attitude, uh, and make sure you try to stay positive through it. Because there's nothing. I mean, the way I look at it is, there's really nothing I can do about it, other than than do my part to to take care of myself and those around me, uh, and be responsible. But uh, it does require, uh, I think, uh, having. Uh, you know, persevering through things and and being mindful that you have to be positive with your attitude and then you know golf has been a savior you know I, I pretty much go to the to my golf club uh every day that uh that there's decent weather and hit balls or uh if i can play i play but uh, uh, that, that's been a savior because you can be outdoors um and uh and you're a little more protected that way and, and the way my friends and i play as soon as we hit our tee shots we are socially distanced Right there, <laughs>
2: <laughs> military golf, a little bit maybe, uh, which we all have. Uh, Jay, you had a great interview on uh, with David Faraday on um, his show Faraday, and you you mentioned that golf is really one of your favorite, ac- maybe if not your favorite activity to do. I guess for you, Jay, like when did you start playing, and what does the game mean to you?
0: Yeah, I I start, I didn't start playing golf until I was in my late twenties. Uh, I was uh, you know playing uh, professional basketball overseas, and during the summertime, I would you know play with some of my friends, and uh, and they were gamblers, so I had to I had to learn how to play, otherwise I'd be digging into my pocket all the time. Sure. Uh, and I just got hooked on it. And for me, it's it's uh, obviously it, it's a, a difficult and fun challenge athletically, but it's also a social game. Uh, so I, I enjoy the, the hell out of it. I, I play as often as I can. And the only thing that's kept me from playing in the last few years is, uh, you know, I had a pretty significant back problem that, that curtailed my play and, and made things really difficult. But I, you know, I've worked hard on that. So I'm healthy again and, and, and playing, playing pain-free or mostly pain-free and playing, playing better as a result. So, uh, you know, I, I joke around with some of my buddies that if I didn't play golf, I don't know how many friends I'd have anymore. Uh, most of my most of our our interactions are around golf. That we we play uh, golf together. We take golf trips, um, and so that's been a that's been a focal point for us. And you know, growing up uh, in in Southern California, my brother I have an older brother, seven years older, and he was a champion golfer from the time he was a little kid. And he played all the time. And my dad joined a club so that my brother could play more often. And you know, he played in college, and you know, it was a champion junior golfer and I hated it from the first day Um, it seemed like every time I went to my dad's club somebody was telling me well don't do this don't do that don't walk here keep quiet no you can't do that you know I remember just being able to just to go out and play you had to pick balls off the range and I'm like nobody makes me like you know rebound before I can play basketball this is ridiculous right and so I kind of I kind of stayed away from it and uh, and then I got hooked when I was in my late 20s.
1: And and since then, it's it's really uh, been
0: my number one sport to
1: play. Love that. I mean, hey, we, we were just talking about this the other day about this whole new thing coming up, golf hoodies, right? Like if people were wearing hoodies on the course when you were a kid, who knows? Maybe you would have gotten into it a little bit easier.
0: Yeah, I don't know what I wore would have been the the issue. I think it was more, <laughs> you know, sort of the idea that um, there were so many rules, not just rules yeah. of play. I didn't mind that, uh, but but so many rules around the club, it just seemed like it was hostile to juniors, and uh, and I didn't care for it. And because and, nobody told me to be quiet in any other sport I played, or um, you know, you didn't have to worry about any of that stuff. And and so yeah, I have a great, obviously now that I'm older and more mature. Hopefully, uh, I have a greater appreciation for some of the some of the rules that golf has, but. You know, like your, your point about the hoodies, uh, I, I, years ago, I had a friend of mine from an apparel company send me some, some uh, apparel. And, you know, it had zipper on the side and all that stuff. And there was stuff that I couldn't wear at my club. And I remember my, my buddy telling me, and it was a, you know, big apparel company. As soon as I said, well, I can't wear these at my club. We have rules against, you know, zippers on the side. And, and he said, that's what's wrong with golf. Yeah. And uh, and, you know, it was kind of a fair point that, you know, who cares whether I had a zipper like I could wear a pair of conforming shorts that had paint all over them and were frayed and look terrible. But if I wore a brand new pair of things with a zipper on the side, I could, I, you know, they'd send me back into the locker room from the first tee. Uh, sure. You know, those are the kind of things that when I was a kid would set me off.
2: Well, and to, just to your point on private clubs, not being very being a little hostile to juniors. It's true. And I think even when I grew, I grew up playing, I played in college. You felt that a little bit of private clubs. Tiger really changed that, I think. And but it it, it still didn't. It wasn't overnight like in 1998. But um, I think that's been a great evolve evolving, you know, area of golf
0: because it's. I agree. It's true. At yeah, my club now, I play at Charlotte Country Club in in Charlotte, North Carolina, and one of the one of the things that my friends and I comment on all the time is when we see like a pack of junior players that that are are schlepping their bags from the range or going out on the course and we just think it's so great uh that they're falling in love with the game early and that they're being uh treated well and accommodated um and and, you know look there there's selfish interest for the club that those could be future members but but having a young person um, feel welcomed by the game instead of that, that, you know, walking on eggshells that they might make a mistake uh, or that, that they're not the real members. Um, you know, I think those days, at least, at least as far as I can tell, those days seem to be over. Yeah. It's really yeah.
1: It's, it's unbelievable. The learning curve, too, of just not even the, the rules, but the etiquette you learn. You know, we've all had the friend, we've all done it ourselves where you leave the cart 30 yards back or your bag on the other side of the green. And there's all this stuff that happens that really makes it tough to get into the game. But Jay, you said in another interview that we watched that golf and basketball aren't that different. Um, You know, it's one of those things where you can be pretty decent at it, but look like you're not, right? I'd be curious to hear what else, what the other parallels are that you see that maybe you draw on from basketball that's similar with golf.
0: Yeah, I think what you're referring to is, is um, you know, when I, was, when I quit playing overseas professionally, I would go, I was working as a lawyer uh, in Charlotte and I would go at lunch to play ball and there were all these, uh, you know, other professionals that were, were there playing ball at lunch and they loved it and they were awful. Um, some of them were just total hacks, but they were there every day and they couldn't get enough of it. And, and I remember thinking to myself, like how could they be so bad at something and enjoy it so much? And then I really started getting into golf and I go, okay, I get it now. Uh, you know, it, 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 There were parallels there. I, the one thing I regret about not playing as a junior was uh, I think I w- if I had played golf as a junior, I would have been a far better basketball player hmm. because golf has taught me how to deal with failure and move on. Uh, to the next thing, a lot faster than anything else I've done, um, and I think I think I still struggle with this in golf of carrying uh, some of you know something negative forward. Uh, and my brother, who is a great gol- has always been a great golfer. Never never did that, and never does that. If he hits the ball sideways or you know knocks one out of bounds or something, it doesn't bother him, and it, it, it bothers me for a long time. And I remember, you know, he, he, I still laugh about this. Like my brother never really gets mad on a golf course. And uh, you know, he, he he hooked one out of bounds sometime. Yeah. And one time we were playing, and and, and he, he just teed another ball up, and okay, and just no problem. And I would have been seething. And I said, I said, like, how is it you never get mad when that happens? And he goes, and he goes, well, the difference between you and me is, I know I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> and he was right I was worried about doing it again he was like okay I had a bad swing I'm not going to do it again
1: it's really funny you say that because literally last week we had PGA tour winner Adam Long on the show and we asked him the last thing we asked him was the one thing that amateurs do that pros don't and he said overreacting and so the one lesson is to underreact right and the ability to move on I know coach K talked about next play a lot right I wonder you know. That's probably a huge parallel, too, is just even though we're not that good, we tend to overreact for the good and the bad, right? Where a pro is kind of even keel and moves on and kind of sticks to their process.
0: Yeah, and and I mean, obviously, the difference is um, relative to guys like me. They know what they're doing, and I don't. Sure. And, you know, I'm a a seven handicap right now. I ballooned up a little bit. I was better before. But no, look, I, I mean, I, when I first started playing, I thought um, if I could ever get down to single digits, I would be happy forever. And then I got down there and I've never been more miserable, um, <laughs> you know, because you, you, your expectations change.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and so I think the one thing that, that's been a, a difficulty for me in my game is I don't enjoy the good shots as much as I lament the bad ones. And, and I care, I tend to carry that, you know, sort of negativity with me longer than, than I should. And I do say next play to myself a lot when I play golf, um, uh, which is a thing that I did that coach K used to preach all the time. You got to move on right away. Otherwise you're, you're not going to make the next play. Um, and just, you know, just, you know, wherever you are, I'm, I'm in the woods. Okay. We'll figure a way out of it and, and quit worrying about how you got there. You're here. And, um, uh, but i I, have worked on that i've gotten gotten much better at
2: that my older brother played on the canadian tour when he was playing his best golf he's a very animated person would actually get very angry when he'd hit a bad shot kind of like whoa joe chill out but he would forget the fastest when he got up to the when he got into that next 45 seconds to a minute it's like it never happened right so it's like you erase your individuality right
0: like yeah, you know, when I, I wrote a book a few years ago, and and one of the people I consulted on it was Curtis Strange. And mm-hmm. when Curtis was talking about golf, he he had asked me a, a question. He said, "All right, how long in a round of golf um, do you think it, it the a- actual action takes of putting? You know, getting in your stance, putting club to club to the ball, and then getting in a finished position. Um, say you shoot par, so seventy two strokes uh, of the club." you know, how long do you think that takes? And I, I said, I don't know, five minutes. And, and I think he said it was actually a little bit less than that. Yeah. So less than five minutes. And he says, you know, the average round of golf takes about four and a half hours. And, and he said, that's a lot of time to F yourself up in between shots. Right. And so the, the best players I've ever played with, my brother included, um, can, they're really concentrated in the action. So when it's their turn, they are laser-focused on what they have to do. And then as soon as the action's over, they can go back to, to being jovial and, or whatever and, and having a good time and enjoying the day. But when it's time for the, the action, yeah. they're concentrated and, and they handle it. And that's really what golf is. It's just sort of, to me anyway, it's, you know, it's not like you have to be this, this uh, you know, furrowed brow competitor for five straight hours. Um, but you have oh. to do it when it's time to swing the club. And, uh, and that's, I think, what the best players do. And, and as you guys know better than I do, the mental aspect of the game is, is way more important than the physical.
2: You wear yourself down trying to focus all day. You become miserable. Yeah. <laughs> um, I got to let you know that I am from Chicago. And LeBron just won his fourth title <laughs> with his – technically his fourth different team, three franchises, four different teams. Let me ask you this, Jay. Did the last dance kind of open people's eyes and get them to really look in to see what Michael Jordan was about, what the Bulls were about, and is, is MJ one and LeBron two, or how do you make of all, all of this LeBron's freak of nature dominance, and he gets better as he gets older, but the world has kind of really got to see what Michael Jordan was about.
0: The last dance was eye-opening for younger people who maybe didn't see Jordan play, Right. Uh, in, in real time uh, back in the day. And so for you know, people my son's age, who's just turned 24, and he, he didn't see Jordan play. And, and so that opened some people's eyes on that. Um, but I think it, a lot of the MJ um, LeBron debate uh, is paralleled by the Jack Tiger debate. So there are people out there that will say, hey, until Tiger gets to 18, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. And you're going, okay. So all you have to do is be able to count to, to make this determination. 18 uh, is better than 15, so that's the end of the story. I don't buy that. I don't think that's true.
2: And it's the same um, thing with six. Got to get to six, right? It's to the six. same thing. It, yeah. But but
0: even if he gets to six, uh, LeBron gets to six. There are those that will say, well, MJ was six and zero in the finals. Right. Well, but he he got there six times, and and LeBron's gotten there ten. So does it not count that Jordan fell short of even the, the finals all those years? Like, that, does, that, that, that doesn't enter into it. And doesn't enter into it how good uh, LeBron yeah. is at age 35. Um, he's the best 35-year-old basketball player to ever play. That's not, that's not even a debate. He's the best by far. And he's not done. Um, so I, I think there are nuances that people, you know, some people aren't interested in, in discussing. Right. Uh, with regard to LeBron versus Jordan. And look, would I say that, that Jordan's still kind of number one and LeBron's 1A? Uh, but but it's, a, it's a damn good discussion that needs to be, needs to be had. Um, I ask a lot of people, actually, that they'll say, no discussion, Jordan number one. I go, okay, who did Jordan replace for you? Like, who was number one before he? You know, and then, then you see people going, uh, you know, they don't have an answer. I mean, for me, it was Kareem. Like Kareem before Jordan, Kareem was the best player ever. He's the best college player ever, and I don't see how anybody could say otherwise. There's nobody be- that's been as good as, as, as Kareem was when he's Lou Alcindor at UCLA. It's Andy's not went, even close. And he's won close.
2: Six, six titles. Which he won six titles forgotten.
0: in the NBA, six <laughs> MVPs. Yeah. Uh, he was uh, uh, the uh, Finals MVP twice. All-time leading scorer. Played 20 years. Um, and he was the greatest, single greatest offensive weapon in the history of the game. There, there's nobody could score like Kareem could uh, with that skyhook. It was unblockable, um, yeah. r- ridiculous, the numbers he put up. And then in college, they had to change. They literally changed the rules for him. As a yeah. They put the no dunk rule in because of because him coming to – and he won three titles. It would have been four if he could have played as a freshman. And I think he, he lost two games. He was like 88-2. and two in his three years Um, absurd I mean he was the best player by far you know you hear this stuff and look I happen to believe it's nonsense but this stuff about well the game was so much tougher in the 90s and 80s Um, you know they could hand check back then like 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 LeBron couldn't throw off a hand check you know like John Stockton could play but not LeBron Um, it's absurd to suggest that LeBron would have been just as great back then and and equally the same as now I happen to believe that the great players would be great in any era. Um, But you never hear it's basketball seems to be one of the only sports, if not the only sport where people uh, people seem to say that the players 20 years ago were better than they are now. And they're not. Right. Um, Because the the players in the 80s and 90s would not listen to you if you said, well, the players in the 60s were better. (laughs) They, They would never entertain that. And you know we're not having discussions over Byron Nelson being better than Jack or Tiger, or Sarazen, or you know you name it. We we don't have those discussions. And somehow they like the players in golf now are so much more athletic. Um, it is absurd how athletic they are and dialed in. And uh, um, I don't care if they're hitting a, a Pro V1 or a Gutta Percha ball. The guys now could hit any ball further than the guys could. 30 years ago. Um, they're just better athletes generally uh, and across the board.
1: Yeah. It's interesting staying on basketball for one more beat here. Um, Colin Coward was just talking this week a lot about how, you know, forget best player. He was saying LeBron's the best foundational piece in history of American sports because it doesn't matter who his coach is. doesn't matter who his number two is, whether it's a big man or a guard, he elevates any team to get to the finals and so I guess it begs this question I'd love to hear your thoughts on a lot of people value the single franchise thing right the Brady the Jordan single franchise same coach what is your view on on that argument of being able to do it anywhere you know versus doing it great in one place
0: Well, the single franchise theory is antiquated because back in the day, players couldn't move around at all. Sure. So in baseball, you had the reserve clause. Um, uh, There was no free agency. Uh, There was no free agency in basketball or football. The teams owned you. And so they could trade you, but you couldn't leave in free agency. And now you can. So to me, like the argument over Kevin Durant leaving Oklahoma City to go to Golden State and then Brooklyn, like he put his time in in, in, at Oklahoma City. I used seven years there. I mean, how long do they want him to stay? Yeah. And, you know, Brady wound up leaving. I mean, Willie Mays played for different teams. So what? Uh, like, your point about LeBron's a good one, that no matter where he's been, they've won. And it's not because of other factors. It's because of him. You know, they've been in the finals because of him. And he left, and, the you know, where the teams he left went downhill. You know, he went to a franchise that was struggling mightily in L.A., and in two years they're, in, they're they win it all. And that's not an accident. Um, he's, he's been the best player for 15 years or so. And, and there's been very little drop off. Um, I watched him play in high school and, uh, and actually did one of his high school, the first time that ESPN put on a high school game, we had, sure. you know, we had this, you know, St. Vincent St. Mary playing Oak Hill in Akron. And, uh, and we wound up, you know, uh, Dick Vitale and Bill Walton and Dan Schulman and I did the game. And I was a sideline reporter. and I was the only one that had seen him play before. And so they went to me. I said, he's the best high school player I've ever seen. And, and I got a ton of blowback for saying that. And, and some people were like saying, well, what about Oscar Robertson? Like, how old do you think I am? Like, I didn't see Oscar <laughs> Robertson play in high school. It's the best I've ever seen. Um, but but there, there's no question he was going to be the best player when he got to the NBA he'd be the number one pick. I mean, you just, you could see it. He was just so incredibly talented. So, so physically superior uh, and all, and he had a drive to him um, and a skill level that very few, very few people could even approach, let alone match. So, um, you know, things are different now. The players were we're more used to seeing young players be great earlier, even in golf, Um, you know, all the 20, you know, Matthew Wolf, you name it—all these young players yeah. that, that years ago would still be in college, um, are now winning PGA Tour events and contending for
1: majors. Uh, you know, everything's
0: changed in that regard, especially in basketball.
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, speaking of of young guys, um, I I saw a special moment with your son Anthony when you got to interview him. You guys were kind of poking at each other of who you know his biggest hero was. He wouldn't mention you, but I really wanted to know. You know, you've learned a lot as a championship player, coach, analyst, author. I mean, you've done a lot of things. I'm just curious, as a dad, watching your son play, have you learned anything new from watching and guiding your son, almost seeing it happen again, you know, through his eyes and through his experience? Did you learn anything new or experiences that you didn't expect as a dad?
0: Yeah, just how much fun I, I had watching him play. Uh, you know, I, I, I said this on the air, like, you know, of all the players I've seen, he's, he's my favorite player that I've ever watched play. Um, because I enjoyed watching him enjoy it so much. Yeah. And, you know, there was a time when, uh, you know, he was playing AAU ball, where my wife asked me and a, and a friend to, to coach their team, because she got tired of watching all these, these people yell at players for no reason and uh and we wound up having a pretty good team you know my son played with daniel jones who, who's the quarterback of the uh, new york giants now and uh, grant williams who's now with the boston celtics so it was a pretty fun team to watch play but just watching the guys so I kind of enjoy competition and then win or lose you know they kind of wanted to go hang out and uh and you know so we, we were able to leave them alone so they could enjoy that but you know, part of it had to do with, uh, uh, to me, um, how do you help a player sort of compete at a high level and learn and, uh, and all that and, and hold themselves accountable, but at the same time not do it in a way that, that was done with us growing up, where, you know, it, you're kind of too hard on them, um, because that's the way I was coached when I was a kid. Um, a lot of the, Some of the coaches I played for were borderline abusive. And uh, and it wasn't considered abusive back then, but it is now because it was. And so I spent a lot of time at my camp. We have a coaches development and coaches leadership program. So we talk a lot about, you know, how you deal with players. And uh, and I I even had to deal with parents, you know, like the parents took it way too serious. Some of them took it way too seriously. And I remember a parent came up after one of our games and this AAU thing and said, you know, we – these guys got to understand uh, how hard you got to play, and uh, and how you got to concentrate through a game and all that. And I, it was like our third game of the day, and i had said to the guy, who was a great guy, but i had said to him, I said, you know what? That's a great point. We need to get some of our old game films out when we were their age and show them how we never took a play off and how we dove on every loose ball and how we never lost. And you're like, you know, dial it down a notch. You know, they're supposed to enjoy this, and uh, and you know. Competition is for, like, I never cared for for you know sort of the sulking after a game. Disappointment's fine, I get it, but you know all the stuff about like I don't care how competitive you are after the game's over. Competitiveness is for when the game's on. Once the game's over, it's it's over. So there's nothing you can do about it, and uh, so don't take it out on everybody else um, and, and try to show how you know, like, how much you hate to lose. Um, I never like that either. I'm not a big fan of, of people who say, "Well, I hate to lose more than I want to win." Right. You know that that's sort of focusing too much on the negative, in my view. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I want to win. It's not that it's not that I hate to lose. Of course, you hate to lose. But you know, I never left the huddle with the team saying, "You know, one, two, three, don't lose." Um, you know, it's one, right. two, three, win. <laughs> yeah, uh, we right. wanted to win, and we weren't. You know, th- so the goal was. Don't be afraid of the consequence. Like, of course we could lose if, if they play better, we don't play well, whatever. That's part of it. We accept that. Uh, so we're going to do everything we can to win and not be afraid of, of the outcome.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I, th- I think that's big on the golf course too, right?
0: You absolutely. To
2: lose. But it, it, I'm really interested in you talking about kind of kids these days where you're playing basketball and you know, coaching them because times have changed. So, but at the end of the day, process, toughness, instilling routines to to get these kids to be better, you know, at the college level, how is that, how how are coaches tweaking that these days? Because to that end, there's a lot of distractions now with social media, you know, and because at the end of the day, it's the same goal is to win and to train these kids to be great players and great people and develop habits that make them high performers. Uh, how, how, what are you seeing out there? And, and I know you're still you're around a lot of you know, kids all the time that are playing at the high level.
0: Well, I think your point, Matt, about social media, like the players today and, and young people today are dealing with, with way more variables than we did. Right. Uh, social media being one of them. I mean, they're bombarded by images that are not always positive and they're, they're consumed by it. And we are too. We like to think we're not, but we are too. Um, you know, people my age are sh- scrolling through Instagram when they should be sure. talking to one another and all that. Same as young people. We just didn't have it in our formative years. So even even my kids weren't bombarded by it until they got to high school when they were when they were coming up. They, they were able to avoid that. And I think that was largely a good thing for their development. But I think it, it requires, um, you know, coaches and people in positions of authority over over young people to be mindful of that that you, you have to be a lot more concerned now about how you say something, not just what you say, which is very important, but how you say it. And I always say in my job as a broadcaster, my job is to say the right thing at the right time in the right tone. And, you know, tone is very important. And I think tone is very important with, uh, you know, when you're coaching or teaching, um, you know, what, you have to think about what your goal is. And I wind up talking to coaches a lot about, you know, a lot of coaches will tell you that, especially in the high school level, they'll say, hey, only, only 5% of all players are going to go on and play in, in college. And you're like, okay, well, if that's true, then don't you owe all your players to make this a positive experience? If only 5% are going to go on after this, that, then you're in charge of their last, you know, sort of competitive experience in the game uh, in organized basketball. So doesn't that require that you make this a, a, as good of an experience as you can? Um, and you know, do you wanna spend your time like, berating players over things? Or you, know, you, you can hold somebody to a high standard without making them miserable. And so I always think about what Tony Dungy said about coaching, that you can be demanding without being demeaning. And mm-hmm. demanding is fine. Right. Uh, when it gets toward or across that line of demeaning, then you've, you, you're in trouble.
2: Uh, absolutely. Well, I, I, I got to ask one question around Coach Kay. Obviously, you're playing for him, you're coaching next to him, you're winning with him. He's arguably the greatest coach to ever live at, at the college level and one of the greatest coaches in all of sport. Now, I've always watched Coach K, and he seems like he's just always been the master of it. instilling his will into his players, you know, when times that they need it most. Maybe just talk about how he's just the master getting the most out of the kids and when they all leave Duke they just can't stop talking about their time with him
0: he's uh I think one of the things that's been that's always great been great about coach K is he's got a great feel for uh for people and and for uh relationship dynamics um you know he's a very different coach now than he was when I played for him he's not different in his principles but I think he's different a lot different in his methods and he's he's changed a lot. He's not. Uh, he, he was pretty, really demanding back then, and and you know you made a mistake, you heard about it right away. It's not that he doesn't point it out now, but it's not as uh, it's not as uh, violent as it used to be um, uh, verbally. But uh, even then, he was never uh, demeaning. Um, it was just loud and, and yeah. loud all the time. Um, but he had he had a great feel for you know how much to give us in preparation um and and how to put us in the best position to get the 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 most positive result and i'll give you an example like you know when we used to play against north carolina that was the you know biggest rivalry in the game and certainly the biggest for us uh and so it could be a tension filled game and we 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 were in a nip and tuck game with north carolina down at the end and and there's a timeout with under a minute to go and you Know, we were very keyed up to the point of, of being. I don't know, I don't want to say tight, but but you know, there's a lot of tension in the building. And he got into the huddle and he looked at all of us and he says, Isn't this fun? And we were like, Yeah, this and is I fun. Just gotta... I wasn't really thinking about fun <laughs> until right then, but yeah, this is where we've always wanted to be. And you know, so he's other. got a great feel for that. So, you know, a number of guys have said this about him that when, when things are the craziest that's when he's the most calm. And yeah. when things are kind of too calm, that's when he'll go a little crazy to make sure that your level yeah. is, is in the right place. And, and I think that speaks to the feel that he has about people, his team, and the game.
1: I love that because that is, you hear that a lot from PGA Tour pros, right? You've got, I mean, Adam Long said last week, he was on you know, the T box, never won before against Phil Mickelson. And we talked about how he had two options. You could get really nervous because he's won, you're playing against a hall of famer. That's won for over 45 times. You're not supposed to win or you could take it as this is what I've wanted. Always. What a cool experience, right? Nobody's expecting me to win. So why don't I relax and enjoy it? Right. And that's the difference and that's really what helped him win. And so yeah, I love mindset parallels there. between that.
0: Yeah. It's a mindset thing. So, um, you know, it's kind of funny, whether it's golf or basketball, you can name anything. You know, when you're, when you're a kid or, uh, and, and you're dreaming about being in that situation, you're playing in your backyard or your local high school or whatever, and you're taking the last shot, you know, three, two, one, or shooting a free throw that's going to win the, the championship mm-hmm. or making a putt that's going to win the Masters, what, whatever it is. And then when you get into that situation, you're thinking about all the times you did it in the backyard or all the times you know, out on the putting green or the range, whatever. Um, so it's, it's kind of an odd thing. And, and then the other, the other part of it is uh, and I learned this um, when I actually, when I was in high school, I had a drama teacher, kind of a speech and debate teacher, a drama teacher named Billy Kramer. And he used to get on me about, about, um, you know, sort of my concentration level in the moment. And he, he would, he he always used basketball uh, with me to kind of chide me about it. And he he pointed out one time, he says, you don't have an opponent right now. Like there is nobody stopping you, trying to actively stop you from doing what you're supposed to do. You know, don't be your own opponent. And I started thinking about that, you know, like in golf or all these other things that I, that I do. Um, I had an opponent when I played basketball, you know, the truth is coach K didn't have an opponent. We had comp, you know, he had competition, but even there was nobody that was trying to guard him to, to, you know, in a huddle or trying to, you know, stop him from doing what he was supposed to do in a game. Um, there were people on the floor trying to stop me or my teammates from doing what we were intending to do. And in golf, you, you know, your point about playing with Phil Mickelson, you know, you play with Phil Mickelson, he can't stop you from hitting a shot. Um, he, he's your competition, uh, but he's not, you don't have an opponent. and And that's, probably been one of the biggest mental hurdles I've had in golf is don't be your own opponent. Like there's nothing stopping you from doing what you intend to do here. And the only thing that can stop you is you. And it doesn't mean you're going to hit every shot well, obviously, but, 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 you know, you don't want to let yourself get in the way and be your own opponent in
1: those situations. I would love to dive into, you know, the concept of toughness and I've been reading about your book. I think I'm going to buy it once we get off this, just because it, you know, it sounds like it has so many great nuggets, but I guess the first question I had as I was researching is what's the difference in your mind between toughness and discipline?
0: Well, they're, they're, they're part of the same whole. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was growing up, uh, you know, coaches preached toughness without explaining what it meant. Right. And so you might've learned it in your program through us, you know, that, okay, well, I have to do this, this, or this, but it wasn't really defined. And same thing with discipline. You know, like what does discipline really mean? Uh, you know, basically, it's doing the right thing at the right time to the best of your ability, um, and and so and making the right choices. You know, are you disciplined in your approach. That doesn't mean my dad used to talk about that a lot. Uh, my dad never preached to me, um, and that that was a good thing, I think. Um, but he he used to talk to me about um, my about concentration that he would basically say, I, I think I had finished a game or something. And he had noticed that, that I was bothered by something. He said, what, what was, what was going on? And I said, Oh, I, you know, I got a lot going on right now. I got, you know, I got th- this test coming up and I got this happening or whatever. And he said, look, you can't do anything about that while you're playing basketball. There, when, when, when you go to a game, there's, there, there's nothing wrong with devoting hundred percent of your time and energy to that. He says, you can't do anything about your test while the game's going on. Now, after the game's over, then quit thinking about the game and start preparing for your test. And when you're taking the test and you got a game that night, doesn't do you any good to think about the game. You, know, you can't really prepare for the game while you're taking a test. Take the test and be 100% in on the test. And he's saying, when you set aside time to go out with your friends, go to a movie, you know, you, you can throw all your energy into that. You need- don't need to think about other things um so his thing was was concentrate on what you're doing while you're doing it and then when you're done like he didn't believe in multitasking like to him to him multitasking means i'm going to get a lot of things done today but it didn't mean i'm going to do two things at once right it it meant i'm going to do this and finish it or, or or do what i need to do here and then i'm going to move on and do this um it didn't mean you know the idea that you could accomplish two things at one time i don't think he really believed in that.
2: Jed, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, how to stay focused, you know, for the basketball game, right? To like, you got all this stuff going on in your life, but dad says you got to go and you got to block it out and compete. And basketball is a very, you know, it's a reactionary game. You're moving. There's not that couple minutes in between your golf shot, right? Do you, you know, because when you get to the golf course, boy, if things are on your mind in your life, it can be. It can really affect you when you're out on the course because you can think and internalize, and you just can't focus. Do you think that you know people who play basketball or football or physical, reactionary in the moment sports, and then try to do golf? That's a hard transition because of all this time to yourself and trying to figure out who your opponent is, whether it's the course, whether it's yourself, whether it's the people you're playing.
0: It can be. That's a really good question. I think it can be, Um, you know, my biggest challenge, or um, I should say, among my biggest challenges in golf is slowing down. Um, You know, like, like I'm always mindful about, you know, keeping pace and making sure I play fast and all that. But, you know, I can get to the ball quickly. It doesn't mean that when I am going through my routine, I have to speed up. Um, And, and I always try to, to, you know, walk at a certain pace and, uh, make sure I don't get ahead of myself. Um, and you know, it, it even gets down Matt, to, to practicing. Like I've learned how to practice better, uh, during COVID. I've really spent a lot of time on, okay, I've got time to practice, but, but I have to practice the right way. And yeah. so I've, I've been with my pro a lot in dealing with how to practice, you know, how to diagnose things. And so if I set aside, a, a, an hour where I go to hit balls, I'm not going there to hit as many balls as I can in an hour. I'm going, I've got an hour. Let's right. take this hour and, and apply myself the right way for that hour. And if it means I hit 20 balls or 15 balls, I want to make sure I'm doing everything the right way. And from the time I warm up and all that, um, I'm much more focused in my practice. So I get more, I, at least lately, I've been getting more out of it. Um, so I think that's all part of what you're talking about is, is yeah. the discipline to. Um, you know, have a plan, like having a plan when you go play. Um, I, I think when I first started playing and playing at a, at least a decent level, um, my scores were dependent on how I started. That if I had a good start, uh, I was going to, you know, I was going to be in a better position to shoot a good score. If I got day, off to a bad start.
2: the day, yeah.
0: Yeah, if I got off to a bad start, you know, it, it sort of was an indicator to me that, uh-oh, uh-oh like I was going to have a bad day. Well, I had a couple bad holes, doesn't mean I'm going to have a bad day. I got a lot in front of me, and um, uh, so I'm much better at that. And especially since I've been been working with my pro on sort of how to practice, and you know, just practicing a lot, practicing the wrong things a lot doesn't really help you. Uh, practicing the right things a little is a lot better. And uh, so I've been much better with that. I
2: could see where it would translate maybe well for you, being around basketball because when you're pra- when you're coaching and you're practicing, you're always planning for the game for your opponent situation getting on the range and playing out situations on the course right is a great is is such a helpful way to practice but i don't think enough amateurs do that too busy working on technique you know hitting a lot of balls as opposed to hey i'm on the first hole there's water left the wind's coming from the right you know let's hit that sh- you know let's feel, feel that shot right it, it, it's a, i think it's very helpful
0: Having a consequence, but also, um, you know, just when you, you're short game practice out of a bunker, or whatever it is, um, uh, making sure that your practice is focused to what you're trying to accomplish. And, yeah. you know, you do want a goal, and there's certain days where I'm, I, I've been working on my irons a lot lately, and uh, yeah. um, and I'm trying to shallow my swing out more. I, in my size, I can get steep in a hurry. Um, but before, I would just go and and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to diagnose everything off my last shot. And instead of doing what you're talking about is go through my routine uh, and, and make it like a shot out on the course, simulate what you're going to see out on the course. So there are days where I'll play, you know, I'll, I'll have maybe an hour uh, yeah. to hour 15 to practice and I'll basically warm up and then play around on the practice team. So yeah. I'll hit a driver and then I'll, I'll, I'll hit a seven iron. And then, and then hit a, hit a short iron, um, you know, do that kind of stuff and where, where it's targeted and you feel like at the end of it, you've gotten around it. I just didn't have to you know, walk to my next shot. Um, right. uh, so I do it different ways all the time, but I, I'm way more focused than I used to be.
1: Speaking Great. of prepping for something you played in the celebrity tournament, American century championship at Edgewood, which is funny because I literally wore my Edgewood Tahoe hat yesterday while playing. I love that course. It's amazing. Um, but what, talk about that experience, right? Because this was, the lights were on, TV cameras, you're an athlete, you've got high expectations for yourself, but you're in an uncomfortable, you know, situation. You're not a professional golfer, you know, like you were as a basketball player. So what was more pressure for you? The first tee at Edgewood, or playing or coaching in a national title game.
0: Oh, the first Edgewood, by far.
2: yeah,
0: there's a part of you in that, in that where, you know, the challenge is, okay, I have to I have to let go of the thought of of the negative of, okay, I don't wanna I don't wanna do something stupid here. I don't want to flare one out of bounds or God forbid, you know, fly one into the crowd. Um, so you had to concentrate on on you Know making a positive uh swing without regard to the, the negative consequences. Um, and then the other part was learning how to manage a tournament. Um, I, I never really my tournament golf has all been you know member guests or playing in your club championship or something where uh, you know, the, the biggest consequence is one of your friends sees your score up on the wall and that's the end of it. Um, so it was different. Um, and I did a lot better this year than I did the first year of dealing with it. Uh, hopefully if I get invited back, um, you know, now if I continue on this track, I'm on of being healthy, I haven't been healthy the last two years. And that's been a problem. When you can't, when your back is killing you and you can't stay down on the ball, that's a problem. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I would, I would, uh, I'd like to play that thing healthy and, uh, and see how I do.
1: Sure. Well, This is a selfish question for me um, because, you know, you do a lot of different things, which I know something your parents really encouraged, right? Jack of all trades versus, you know, a specialist per se. And what do you say to people that say you should specialize in one thing? Um, How do you feel about the being a jack of all trades and doing a lot of different things?
0: Well, I mean, I think when I grew up, there were a couple aspects to that. One is on the sports side. So when I was growing up, uh, everybody, all of my friends, we played every sport. The only sport I did not play growing up was football because my parents wouldn't let me. Uh, my parents said, you can play football when you're in high school. And they, they my dad, I was strategic because my dad figured uh, if I played basketball, when I got to high school, I wouldn't want to play football. And he was right. right. I didn't. I never, I never went out for football. Um, but I, I played basketball and baseball growing up, and loved it. Uh, you played whatever's in season, and uh, you know I used to take my glove to school every day, and we play over the line after school, stuff like that. I played basketball all the time um, on the playgrounds, and played a lot of pickup balls, stuff like that. Um, I don't think I would have been happy playing basketball year-round um, unless it was my choice to do that. Um, if if players feel like it's a um, it's a requirement, like they can only be really good if they do one thing exclusively. I think that's a huge mistake. Um, you know, there, there are reasons for that. You know, one is you get burned out, or can get burned out. The other is re- repetitive stress injury, that you're seeing a lot more of that in young people now because they're only doing one thing and they're doing it over and over again. They're getting these, you know, really bad repeti- repetitive stress injuries. Yeah. Um, but I think it also keeps you, keeps you fresh And you certainly spend a lot more time around around different people playing different sports, but it it gives you a different view, a different mindset, and that's why I wish I had played golf more. Uh, I I think I would have been a way better basketball player if I played golf because it would have conditioned me more to failure. Um, That you're gonna you're gonna have to deal with failure more often in golf than any other sport I've dealt with or or played. Um, but But the the other part about the jack of all trades thing is is you know my parents, my mom especially. Um, Pushed you know. I, I say encouraged to be polite to her, but she made me do a lot of stuff I didn't want to do. Yeah. And it was because she wanted me to, one, be cultured so that I could handle myself in, in different situations. But that was really helpful to have, uh, have done all these different things um, because I've been able to call upon it in, in, in later life. Uh, And those experiences. Um, So I've not been afraid of certain things because of that. And I think I would have been Um, Mm -hmm. like, for example, she pushed me into uh, these speech and debate classes when I was a kid that were horrifying. I mean, I hated them. But um, the situations that put me in in these in these speech and debate competitions, uh, I I was never afraid of a little red light going on in the camera after going through all that. Um, and I think it, it helped me in law school. It helped me as a lawyer. Uh, those, th- those were really important, um, things for me. And, and if it weren't if it weren't for my mother pushing me into that, uh, I think I would have, if I learned those lessons at all, it would have been, it would have been a lot harder when I had to learn them.
2: But Jay, when you, when you were coaching under Coach K and you guys were winning a lot, you were also studying to be, you know, an attorney to get your JD. And then you, you became a broadcaster. Why didn't you want to not continue to coach? Or was there something? I, I'm interested in that. And I know you do coach in other ways, but, you know, coach for Coach K or maybe be a head coach at the highest level. What I don't want to say what drew you away, but what drew you to that next step in your life? The well, I
0: did want to do that. And so I I sort of planned my three years of being a grad. I was a grad assistant for Coach K at Duke, and I, I wanted to stay in it. But um, after my – third year, uh, at Duke, uh, as an assistant, uh, my wife and I got married. And so when we got engaged, we kind of talked about well, where do we, what do you want to, what do you want to do? What do you want out yeah. of this? And I think she would have, she would have gone along with whatever I wanted to do, but, um, it wasn't about what I wanted to do. It's about, about what's best for us. And we sort of decided that we had both grown up in, in the same place and, uh, and, the coaching life would have meant that if uh, I probably would have had to move my family multiple times while they were before they got to high school, uh, at least once, maybe two or three times. And so uh, we had decided that I had other options. Um, so so why don't we why don't we go another way? And it was something. Um, it's not something where I, I I think, okay, well, my wife didn't want to do it. So therefore I didn't do it. You know, it was a decision. It wasn't just what's best for me or what I want. It's what, what's best for us. What do we want? Sure. And I I had these other options and we chose that and we've lived in Charlotte for 28 years and, uh, and the, the broadcasting route's been great. You know, I've had other offers to go back into coaching and, and, you know, to to do some front office stuff. But um, I, I've really enjoyed what I've been doing. So there's been nothing to pull me out of it. So I've been kind of lucky that that I've gotten to do what I want to do and what I enjoy doing. And uh, I don't feel, even though it's, it is work, um, I don't feel like it's work like being a lawyer was work. Uh, sure. This is a hell of a lot more fun than anything else I've ever done.
1: Well, this is the last question and we'll get you out of here, Jay. Um, we appreciate the time. But know technically we're a golf podcast but really we like to use golf as a way to connect and then pull lessons to help people in their lives and right now a lot of people are struggling and have challenges whether it's financially health-wise not being able to connect with people and so i thought there was a really interesting quote from your book um which is called toughness developing true strength on and off the court um which we love because obviously we're about being lessons on and off the course, right? Um, You said, I believe them. And I think this was from a doctor uh, you worked with. It said, I believe the most important thing in any endeavor is hope. You cannot believe it is hopeless because if you do this, it is. And so I just thought it'd be nice to end on, you know, your lesson about hope and maybe something to leave people with um, during this time.
0: Yeah, that, that that was from a, a doctor a friend of mine named Dr. Henry Friedman, and he uh, he's with the Duke Brain Tumor Center, and he was one of the first people I thought of when I wrote the book because I, I couldn't fathom how Henry Friedman is maybe the most positive uh, person I've ever met, and yet the overwhelming majority of his patients die, um, hmm. and that's that's because of the difficulty of of geoblastomas and and uh, you know, brain tumors that he, he deals with. And, and his thing is, has always been about hope. And he, he said, anything good starts with hope. And he, 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 you know, he's a huge Duke basketball fan. He and coach K are great friends. And he said, look, every time you guys went into a season, it started with hope, you know, that, that you, you hoped that you would win a championship. Now hope wasn't your plan, but, but you had that, that positive image of, of being hopeful of, of the positive outcome. And when he would deliver news to patients about the severity of, of what they were facing, Hope was, was his biggest ally. And would talk about, you know, we've got a plan A. And if plan A doesn't work, we're going to go to plan B. And if plan B doesn't work, we're going to go to plan C. And our, our job is, and our goal is, technology is advancing incredibly fast in this area. And our goal is to keep you alive long enough where technology and, and you know, the advances we're making in medicine uh, can, uh, can really help. And you know, he, he told me about a, a patient of his named Sabrina Lewandowski. And he said, I promise you, she's a tiny little blonde woman. And if you locked her in a room with the toughest football and basketball players you've ever met, I promise you she'd be the one that came out. And she had a, when she was diagnosed, had a 9% chance of surviving and did. And now I'm not saying that, that her attitude was what did it, but without her attitude, it would not have. And uh, incredibly uplifting, you know, she's a teacher. And uh, uh, you know, when, when you, when I spoke with her and she uh, walked me through all that she had been through and the, the attitude that she took into it, um, you know her thing was uh 9%. That's me. I'm in the 9%. And that's that was her whole mindset the whole way through. Um, hmm. just an incredible human being and I would not have met her but for but for Henry. And so that, that's really nice of you to bring that up that 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 hope that it's not all this sort of, you know, snarling growling tough guy stuff that that right. people associate with the term toughness. Um a, a tiny 5'3" A uh, blonde woman uh, was maybe the toughest person I talked to uh, in 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 writing this book, and uh, it, to me, it spoke volumes about what toughness is really about. It's not really, it's not oftentimes what you think it is. It's it's deeper than that.
2: Yeah, attitude, that. right? That's where it begins.
1: Mm-hmm. And look, that's another right. example of someone that took something that you know was pretty tough news and turned it into fuel um, to motivate her. So. Jay, thanks so much, guys. If you aren't following Jay, it's at the Real Deal Jay Billis on Instagram. Buy his book, Toughness: Developing True Strength on and Off the Court. Is there anything else or anywhere else you want to send people um, if they want to, you know, keep tabs on the Real Deal Jay Billis?
0: Yeah. I'm not really selling anything else. I'm on Twitter <laughs> at Jay Billis, you know, but, but if I have, if I were to sell, I'll come back, you know, if I come <laughs> yeah. up with some sort of You're welcome uh, anytime. You know, back exercises to keep me going. Right.
2: No, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure speaking to you, Jay. Anyway.
0: Pleasure has been mine. Thank you guys for having me.
1: Thanks so much, Thanks. Jay. Take care.